Well, I am Curtis. I'm one of the elders here at FBC, and I'm richly blessed to fill the pulpit today, to bring the word. And I've told Dan in the past, Dan asked me to fill the pulpit this morning so that he could enjoy the conference and uh, fellowship and reflect. And I tell Dan that uh, that is part of my calling. I serve the Lord by serving Dan. I serve the Lord by serving his church. That is my discipleship, part of my discipleship. And this morning I want to begin with a, a question. How would you describe your discipleship? Let me ask it this way. How is your discipleship? And how is that going? Think about this this morning. And give yourself your answer when we're done. So as we dig into the text for today, we need to look back to remind ourselves of the context. Remember last week Dan told us that up to this point in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus had been teaching about the kingdom of heaven. But here in the middle of chapter 16, we see Jesus begin to teach that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. And in 1622, we see Peter take Jesus aside and begin to rebuke Jesus. And like it happens so much for all of us, Peter had that spiritual high in 1616 when he declared, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then undoubtedly, that spiritual low in verse 23 when Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. It had to hurt, right? Because he was up here. He had the spiritual high. And it seems like always those spiritual lows follow. Remember, Peter was looking for the Messiah to set Israel free from the yoke of the Roman rule. This Christ was to be an earthly king. For Peter, discipleship was to be something different. This was the son of the living God? How could this be? When Peter heard those words, following Peter's great confession of who Jesus is, Peter reveals, as Jesus tells us in verse 23, Peter is not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, if we're honest with ourselves, we see ourselves as Paul or Luke or even James. But the reality is, the man you see standing up here today is Peter. I'm Peter. And the people I see before me same person. Yep, I got a church full of Peters. That's what I think. That's what I think's going on. Wish I was Paul, right? Wish I was James. Luke would be good, right? Dr. Luke. But why do I say that? Why do I say that? Because Peter didn't get discipleship. Peter didn't get it. He'd been following Jesus for two and a half years and he didn't get it. Every day, all day with Jesus, the son of the living God, 
And Peter didn't understand what discipleship was all about. And we know that things changed for him in a great way after Pentecost. And if you're birthed anew, you have the power of the Holy Spirit. But his discipleship changed in a great way for you. Has it changed? And how does following Jesus look different for you today than it did when you began to follow him? You see, Peter had a great confession, an amazing confession. And I bet you do as well. I know I do. I have an amazing confession. But a great confession is not following Jesus. A great confession is not being a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I've told you in the past, when Jesus walked the earth, disciples did everything that the rabbi did. Absolutely everything. They did everything as the rabbi did it. Eat, sleep, talk, respond, act, and interact. Everything just as the rabbi did it. Many times the act preceded the understanding, right? A disciple does what the rabbi does, and he may not understand why the rabbi does it, but he does it anyways. And sometimes the disciple understands, but as we see here in chapter 16, Peter needed redirection from Christ. Get behind me, Satan, is pretty good redirection, right? Peter needed to know what following Jesus truly was. He had a great understanding as to who Jesus was, but he couldn't be further from the truth about discipleship. Listen to me. Peter was a red-blooded Israeli Christian. Now, he was going to be called Christian later, but he was a red-blooded Israeli Christian. We see how red-blooded the Israelis are right now, don't we, in the Middle East? He was a follower of Christ, the son of the living God, and he knew that. And he was done with these Romans occupying Israel, and he wanted them out, right? He wanted them out. He wanted his country godly. This discipleship fit perfectly into Peter's nationalism. Fit perfectly. Peter was a red-blooded Israeli Christian, and he had it all wrong, 100% wrong. In Matthew 16, 24 through 28, Jesus redirects Peter and the rest of the red-blooded Israeli disciples. So let me ask you this. How many disciples today sitting here need redirection? Let me pray. Our Lord and our God, your word is so powerful. And by grace, you give it to us. And we rest in your sovereignty. And we are lavished by your grace. And Lord, I pray that hearts have been prepared to hear your word this morning. I pray that you speak through me in a mighty way. I pray that our discipleship would be as you define it, rather than how we define it. 
And so use this time, Lord, to further your kingdom. May you increase and I decrease. And we hold this all up to you. You are our God and King. Amen. So then let's look at our passage this morning, Matthew 16. Matthew 16, 24 to 28. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and, when he, <clears throat> and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And so I have three divisions for you this morning, the requirement, the cost, and the reality. So we'll look at the requirement. Here in Matthew uh, verse 24, Jesus told his disciples, but Mark records, Jesus called the crowd to him and the disciples. So Mark gives us a little bit more. There's the disciples that are called over and the crowd's called over. He rebukes Peter, right? Peter has taken him aside. He rebukes Peter. And he's like, okay, we got to get this straight, right? Everybody come over here. With Peter's misunderstanding, Jesus wants not just his disciples, but the crowd that was there to understand what following Jesus is all about. Jesus begins with, if anyone would come after me, if anyone, anyone, not just Peter, not just the disciples or those that became known as apostles, not just those that were there, anyone, anyone that would come after Jesus. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, Jesus is talking to you, to every Peter here today. This isn't just for Pastor Dan. That isn't for the men and the women that you see as holy while you just follow along with the crowd. Jesus is talking to the crowd. We are the crowd. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, if you're going to be my disciple, if you're going to eat and sleep, talk, respond, act, and interact as I do, I have these three requirements. I can just see the disciples perk up, right? Well, what do I got to do? What do I got to do? Three things, right? Listening intently to their rabbi. The crowd wanting, the crowd wanting greater understanding. The crowd wanting to know what's required to follow this Jesus. Will I fit in? What's going to be my role? You may sit here today comfortable in your role. Very comfortable in your role. You may sit here today thinking you found your place in this crowd. Everybody sits in the same place every Sunday. You notice that? We found our place. I pray 
you sit here today truly wanting to live as his disciple. You see, biblical discipleship is rarely found in the church in America. In this great country of ours, we have great freedoms. We have a great document in the Constitution. Listen, we can quit our jobs anytime we want. It's America. And we can quit our marriages anytime we want. It's America. We can live anywhere we want. We can eat what we want. And we're tied to nothing. Because we're Americans and we're free. We are red-blooded American Christians. That's who we are. That's who we are. And that's a big reason why biblical discipleship is rarely found in the church in America. Rarely. You see, red-blooded American Christians have a worldview that is not much different than Peter's. We view our discipleship through our national pride. We view it through the Constitution first and the Bible second. You see, our worldview is to be through the Scriptures alone. Doesn't it say something like that over there? Doesn't it say that as we're here every Sunday? Through his word alone, and we've forgotten that because we're red-blooded American Christians. Here in chapter 16, Jesus makes it easy for us. He gives us three requirements, three things true disciples of Christ do. Biblical discipleship. What are they? Deny self. Take up your cross and follow me. That's biblical discipleship. And this had to hit Peter between the eyes. Right between the eyes. Why? Because Jesus told him in verse 32, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter was a red-blooded Israeli disciple. And deny self, take up his cross, and follow Jesus all the way to crucifixion was not discipleship to Peter. Is it discipleship for you? Is it really? Let's see if it is. Let's look at the first requirement, deny self. So when I was a young believer, I thought Christianity was denying self of simple pleasures. And many of us are that way, right? When we become a Christian, it's more about what we don't get to do anymore, right? That's our understanding. Maybe not seeing movies that are less than God-honoring, or maybe refraining from coarse talk, or maybe even just not acting like the Peter that I am. But I'm told this meaning falls short in the Greek. It is an unbiblical understanding of deny self. It was my immature understanding of denying self. So here's a brief definition of denying self. Denying self is to deny one's whole self with all of one's natural motives and impulses so far as they come in conflict with the claims of Christ. I'll read it again. Defying self is to deny one's whole 
self with all of one's natural motives and impulses so far as they come in conflict, conflict with the claims of Christ. Right? So yourself, your whole self, when it disagrees with this, when your actions and reactions and your discipleship is not viewed through this, then you're not denying yourself. You see, all of us, every one of us, have been indoctrinated. Every single one of us. Our fleshly responses are learned behavior. Remember that lousy book that Dan had us do over the summer? That was probably uh, one of the good things out of it, right? I keep going back to it. Our sinful nature, that's our muscle memory. Sorry, Dan, I had to say it. It's our muscle memory. I know how to sin. I'm an expert at sinning, right? But discipleship says that my first response is to go like this, right? But my flesh says, Peter, I'm Peter. I'm going to say this, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to act. We automatically respond as Peter, excuse me, the Peter that we are rather than the Christ that we follow. In my flesh, I take Jesus aside and complain. That's what I do. No different than Peter. In my flesh, I argue with God. And in my flesh, I want my discipleship to be how I see it, how Curtis sees it. And if I don't deny myself, listen to me. I'm in danger, as Peter was, of denying Christ. Don't think so? The same Greek word used in verse 24 is used in reference to Peter denying Christ three times. Same word. To deny self is to put self out of the picture and to put Christ in place of self. And I don't want to respond as Curtis in my flesh. I want to respond as Christ by the power of his Holy Spirit. That's who I want to be as his disciple. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 1 through 8, how to respond as Christ. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection of sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then he says this, having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. If you are his disciple, you are to act as Christ. To deny self means to not be Curtis in the flesh. Don't be Curtis. 
Listen, the name Curtis means courteous, but oddly enough, my wife will say, don't be curt, right? It hurts a little. It hurts a little. To deny self requires me to respond as Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So where in your life, this morning, do you need to deny self through the power of the Holy Spirit? The second requirement of discipleship is take up your cross. Now for Peter and the other disciples, hearing that Jesus must be killed in verse 21, and now here in verse 24, take up your cross, had to be just cold water splashed in their face. Wasn't the plan. Wasn't what they were thinking. Wasn't going to be discipleship for them, right? And we know that crucifixion was a most brutal form of execution. And it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen. And it was considered impolite to mention crucifixion in social gatherings, right? It was so horrific. Crucifixion was reserved for the enemies of Rome. And as the disciples stood in Caesarea Philippi listening to Jesus teach, they had to be taken back some 120 years. It wasn't too long before when 800 Jews were crucified by the Roman proconsul, not too far from where they stood for their revolt following the death of Herod the Great. So when they said crucifixion, right? All these Jews have been crucified there. It's in their face and they understand. Christ hadn't gone to the cross, but they knew. Excuse me, they knew. But why do I share this? The the disciples knew what crosses were for. They understood crucifixion and the requirement had to set them on their heels. This wasn't discipleship. The cross meant physical suffering. The cross meant persecution to the Jews. The cross meant ridicule and shame. The cross for Jesus meant denial by Peter. Abandonment at the foot of the cross of all his disciples but John. It meant being beaten. It meant those he came to save calling for his crucifixion. It meant humiliation. It meant he was obedient to his father. And it meant he was the Christ, the son of the living God. The cross means that as his disciples, though we endure much when placed upon us, we must endeavor to, by his grace, endure more. It doesn't end. It's not just so much. And we don't toss our cross off our shoulder. It means we must follow the master in the footsteps of his suffering. That's what he's saying. That's what discipleship is. It means we can't grow impatient under suffering. Which God is pleased to lay upon us. And we know that God uses all things for the good, for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It means embracing God's will at the expense of our own. Many of our afflictions from our crosses are minor 
truly minor in comparison to the heaviest of burdens. And I suspect the roughly hewn lumber that Christ placed on his shoulder deposited splinters in his back. And as he carried it, the wood worked under his skin. As his disciples, things are going to get under our skin. Things are going to bother us. But we have to carry on. We have to endure. We have to carry that cross. At times, the weight of our cross becomes more than we can bear. More than we can bear. And the Lord will send a brother or a sister alongside you to help you, just as he sent Simon the Cyrene to help Jesus. Listen, if God in the flesh needed help from a brother or sister, there's a pretty good chance Curtis is going to need help from a brother or a sister as well. Tradition tells us Peter sang hymns to encourage his wife as she was crucified before him. As the cross was there for her, and she followed all the way to death, and all Peter could do for his bride was worship God. How often do you bear the burden of your cross? And who are you coming alongside in this church to help them? Because everybody has one if you're his disciple. You have to take it up. The greatest lessons as his disciple come under the weight of the cross. And those lessons are learned when we respond as Christ. When we see this life through his word while under the cross. The last requirement Jesus gives here for, for discipleship is follow me. Deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. There is great comfort when the Christ, the living God, the son of the living God says, follow me. Follow me. Why is there comfort in follow me? Because Jesus went before me. Because he went before you. Follow me. Because he is the good shepherd that lays down his life for his sheep. Because we love. Because he first loved us. This following Jesus, it's energetic and it's active. It's not passive. It's not resigned. We're to follow in his footsteps with zeal as he leads us through discipleship. Following Jesus means following his word. That's what following Jesus is, right? We speak to God through prayer. He speaks to us through his word. You know why I don't like when people say, I think, when we're talking about the Bible? Because I don't care what you think. Because you're Peter. I want to know what God says. Right? And if you're not doing what God says, as you're carrying that cross, you're doing what Peter says. 
You're doing what Curtis says. Following Jesus means following his word even when we don't understand. Do you understand that? Even when you don't understand, it says it in black and white. Well, I know, but I don't like it. I'm okay with you not liking it. I'm okay with you not being okay with it. But it's still God's word. Don't argue with me, argue with God. Go get on your knees. It's okay to argue with God. You might say, get behind me, Satan, but it's okay to argue with God. It means trusting Jesus when he calls us to the hard things, right? Because sometimes it's not just splinters digging into our back and our shoulder. Because life is hard. It's hard. And discipleship is hard. And when you deny yourself and you take up that cross, it's hard. It's not easy. It means stepping forward in faith while in the throes of carrying your cross. Following Jesus every day means being more like him and less like Peter every day. Listen, I want to be a better father, employee, elder, brother, everything in my life today than I was yesterday and tomorrow than I am today. And that is fruit of discipleship as I'm changed in the image of his son. Following Jesus means going where your flesh doesn't want to go. It doesn't want to go there. Following Jesus means that your Peter is your past. In church, it's time to make that your past. So then, where in your walk do you need to deny yourself? Is it at home? Is it at work? Is it at church? Or is it at school, kids? And how have you taken up your cross today? What needs to change in your life so that you no longer follow your flesh, but you follow Christ? Our next division is the cost. The cost. We're going to look at Matthew 16, 25, and 26. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? i got another question for you. You ready? How much do you love this life? How much do you love this life? By world standards, every person sitting here has a dream life. A dream life. If we look at this life today compared to life in past ages, we got a pretty good life. Clean running water, plumbing and electricity, modern medicine. We can fly anywhere in the world. We have anything we want at the click of a mouse. It'll be here tomorrow if you have Prime. 
right? Just click, right? Just click. When I first began following Jesus, the internet really wasn't there. And you had to study, and you were more using marginal, marginal references, and you had to make your own notes, and you kept records. And now you just, and you have the answer. And we're blessed. It's at our fingertips. When I was a young man, and even a young professing Christian, I was a thrill seeker. I lived for fun. I didn't live for Jesus. I lived for fun. Be it competition or motorsports, I wanted to enjoy life in its fullest. Race cars and boats and motorcycles and quads, I built them and raced them and operated them. And it was my life, right? That was Curtis. I wanted a motorhome and a Southwest tour car and somebody to work me four days a week so I could drive to the next racetrack, right? That's what I wanted. That was life for Curtis. And few people know how amazing my job is. You have no idea, right? And how I was driven to be the best all-around cowboy, the best all-around elevator escalator mechanic there was in my small and unique industry. I grew up sitting around the kitchen table because my uncles, my dad, they're all elevator guys and I'm just a little guy. And I'm listening to them telling stories and they're laughing and I'm laughing with them and I have no idea what they're laughing about and I have no idea what they're talking about. But I have a romance about my job. I love my job. And it was everything to me. Everything. And somewhere along the way I met a girl a wonderful woman. And she gave me two beautiful children. I felt the weight of responsibility. I felt the Lord saying, Curtis, what are you doing? And I heard my mom say, don't you let your kids grow up thinking only women go to church, right? A little redirection from mom. In 1995, we moved to Reno and the opportunity to work on 1,000-foot-a-minute gearless elevators. 1,000's good, right? 1,200, probably the fastest in North America. Truly, my flesh and my pride brought me here, or so I thought. Sometime that year, I heard Pastor Dan Frank say, serve the risen Savior. And I'm sure that I heard pastors say that my whole life. But this time I heard it. I actually heard it. And all of a sudden, this life I built began to lose its luster. And I remember Pastor Dan teaching on Luke 14, 25 through 33. Dan Frank, by the way. Let's turn to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, verse 25. 
Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me um, cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and what? Count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and he was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate, or deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. After the sermon, after Dan Frank's sermon, I went to Pastor Dan and said, I don't think that when we begin to follow Jesus, we can truly count the cost. I don't think we can do that. But Jesus is telling, telling us here in Matthew 16, it's going to cost you everything. You don't have to count the cost. Discipleship in Jesus Christ counts you, costs you everything. The life that I loved has gone away. That life is gone. The life that served my flesh first. The life of a red-blooded American Christian had to go. That was 25 years ago. And for 25 years, in all humility, I have come after the Lord with zeal. He called me to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him. And it cost me everything, absolutely everything. But Paul said it best in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ that lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That is following Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say, if you notice, first deny yourself, then take up your cross, then follow me. Did you see that? All three are to be done at the same time. There's and between there. It's all together. And as I look back over the last 25 years, and then I look ahead, I've got so far to go as his disciple. So far to go. As I continue to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him. But let me tell you, in losing my life, I found it. I found it. And it's the best. 
It's absolutely the best. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, Indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in what? His suffering, he says, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, as Paul tells us in, uh, first, or in Colossians 3, 1 through 3, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things of the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If you lose your life for Christ's sake, you're going to find it. And that life is hidden with Christ in God. That's what his word says. And his word is truth. Let's look at Matthew 16, 26. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Man sells his soul to the devil for the world. That's what we do. That's what man does. In our country, man has sold his soul to the devil for the things of the world, things of the flesh. And sadly, red-blooded American Christians do the same thing. For many of the professing Christians in America, Christianity is just part of their portfolio, right? It's part of who they were. They identify as Christians in word, but because they don't deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus, listen to me, they have been deceived by Satan. They've been deceived in thinking discipleship is something other than what it is. Like Lot's wife, they look back. Like the wealthy man that walked away from Jesus sad when he asked to sell all his possessions and give to the poor. And like the disciples that left when Jesus said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life. Listen to me, your soul is the most precious thing in all of creation. How do we know that? Because God sent his son to die for that soul. Right? The most precious thing. Let me ask you something. Have you truly lost your life for Christ? Has that truly happened? Serve the risen Savior. It will cost you everything. And when Christ is your everything, those former things will mean nothing. So our last division, this is going to be quick. Don't have a heart attack. We're there. The reality. 1620, excuse me, 1627 
and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So verse 27 and 28 speak of the reality of this life and the life to come. Because it's God's word, it's truth, right? The reality for those that are self-pleasing and the reality for those that live a life of self-sacrifice. Those that sell their soul to the devil will receive a recompense for a self-pleasing life, a life without denying self, a life without their cross, and a life walking away from Christ. Revelation 22:12 reads, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. But for those that deny self and take up their cross and follow Jesus, Luke tells us in chapter 6, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward in heaven is great. For so their father did to the prophets. In this, life, in this life, Jesus offers a cross to his disciples, but in heaven, that cross is exchanged for a crown. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper here in just a couple minutes, Mark, I love it when we read Matthew 26. And Jesus says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The banquet table in heaven. You understand that heaven to Jesus is his disciples there with him. That's heaven for Jesus. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. This is reality for the true disciples of Christ. So now, for some of you, you've been waiting about verse 28 and what verse 28 means. James Montgomery Boyce commented on Matthew 16 on the entire chapter, and he says this, Although this is one of the richest and most important chapters in the gospel, it is also one that seems to be a source of countless problems. Almost every sentence seems to have produced diverse interpretations among commentators. How is Peter the rock? What are the gates of Hades? What is the meaning of the keys? We do not escape problems even with the chapter's last verse. For no one seems entirely sure what Jesus meant in 1628. Well, here are four suggestions of what 1628 means in Curtis's cop-out in addressing 1628. How does that sound? Right? The first understanding of verse 28 is, the disciples will see the kingdom come with power at the resurrection of Christ or at Pentecost. Commentators see verse 28 referring to his glorious resurrection, his return in the spirit at Pentecost, and in close connection with that event, his reign from his position at the right hand of the Father. So that's the first interpretation. The second one is, Jesus was referring to the fall of Jerusalem. Commentators with this view uh, look to the great prophecy of Matthew 24. A judgment which fell upon the Jewish church 
the destruction of the holy city and the temple in 70 AD, the onward march of Christ's church was as the coming of the Son of Man in his kingdom. So that's the second. The third view is Jesus was referring to the transfiguration. Peter, James, and John witnessed the transfiguration, which took place six days later. They would witness the glorious Christ at the transfiguration, which was a foretaste of the coming of his kingdom. And the last and the fourth view that I have to share here was Jesus expected the end of the world in a few years and he was wrong, right? So this is actually a popular liberal view, but it's unacceptable because it denies the inerrancy of Christ and scripture. The first reviews have merit and are held by great men and women of God. Where does Curtis fall? I don't know. I'm going to wait till Dan teaches on Matthew 24, right? Is that a cop-out or what? Eschatology is not the thrust of this passage, okay? Following Jesus is. Deny self, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. All the disciples were martyred but John. I had a long list for you, but I'm running late. So deny yourself and take up your cross. And Jesus says, follow me. The apostles did all three. Red-blooded American Christians, they do one, maybe two. Now which one's missing? Which one do you need to put in there? Do you deny yourself? Have you taken up your cross? Do you truly follow Jesus? Jesus requires all three. Serve the risen Savior. Let me pray. Our Lord and our God, I thank you for the uh, wonderful truths in your word. I thank you for the burden of teaching your word. And I thank you for your church and the disciples that I'm so blessed to fellowship with and serve you with. And I pray that this church would be true disciples and put your word first, put your kingdom first, and serve the risen Savior. And I thank you and I praise you in your son's glorious name. Amen.